Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches brought to you by New Narrative. I'm your host, PJ Thumb. Southeast Asia Dispatches is a fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. In this episode, we hear about the efforts to bring modern healthcare to one of Myanmar's most secluded areas. We meet a Syrian refugee who's working to improve the lives of fellow asylum seekers in Malaysia. We speak with the owner of an ethical garment company in Cambodia about the labour conditions of garment workers in Southeast Asia. And our editor-in-chief points out the lack of transparency in Singapore's capital punishment regime. Myanmar remains one of the least developed countries in the world, where providing healthcare services to the native population can be extremely difficult work. But when trying to send modern medicines to one of the poorest and most remote regions within the country, medical professionals can find themselves facing an almost insurmountable task. The Naga self-administered zone is one of the most secluded places in all of Myanmar, where much of the local population still struggles to access even the most basic types of medicine. Healthcare NGOs such as Medicine Sans Frontiers are working alongside the Myanmar authorities to bring medical aid to the Naga self-administered zone. But years of marginalization and non-existent infrastructure has made trying to access the area a huge undertaking. Victoria Milko travelled to the Naga self-administered zone with the people working to bring healthcare services to one of Myanmar's most rural communities. In one of the most northwestern corners of Myanmar, just 30 kilometres from the India border, a trio of motorbikes have gotten their engines checked and their medical packs filled as they prepare for the journey ahead. The team of doctors, nurses, and community coordinators are getting ready to cross small wooded footpaths and precarious mountain trails through Myanmar's Naga self-administered zone. They are members of various non-government organizations and the Myanmar Ministry of Health and Sports, working together to provide health care to one of the country's most remote populations. It's difficult to overstate just how isolated this Naga self-administered zone is from the rest of Myanmar, or the challenges facing those trying to provide medical care to the area. Native to a mountain track that overlaps northeastern India and northwestern Myanmar, the Naga people number about 2 million. They are comprised of more than 40 tribes that had little contact with the outside world until British colonizers made inroads in the 19th century. Following the British colonial era, the Naga in Myanmar endured varying levels of control under Myanmar's military junta. But the region, geographically divided from the rest of Myanmar by the expansive Chinwin River and the steep Naga hills, primarily remained isolated, allowing Naga culture to flourish despite various forced cultural homogenization campaigns across the rest of the country. In 2008, Myanmar's new military-drafted constitution created the semi-autonomous Naga self-administered zone. The new designation only provided minuscule steps towards autonomy, placing ministries, including urban and rural projects, construction and maintenance of roads and bridges, and public health under Naga administrative control. But development has been slow in the region. A 2015 report by the United Nations Development Program said the three townships that comprised the Naga self-administered zone were among the poorest, most isolated, and least developed in Myanmar. Going to the Naga self-administered zone, it's easy to see how development of the region has come at a much slower pace than the majority of Myanmar. Paved roads are few and far between, 
and the area is prone to landslides during the monsoon season. The sharp and rolling mountain peaks remain untouched by cell phone towers, resulting in a lack of reliable telecommunications. All of these factors impact availability of healthcare in the region. A major measles outbreak in 2016 that killed over 40 people thrust the Naga self-administered zone's lack of health care into the national spotlight, highlighting the serious gaps that exist for the over 62,000 people living in the region. Most of these villages, they do not have an official health staff. So for the villagers to, to seek official health care, they would need to travel for hours or sometimes even days to reach the nearest hospital. That's very difficult, it's very expensive also. That's Dr. Frank Smithius, a co-founder of Medical Action Myanmar, a local medical organization that has been working in the Naga self-administered zone since 2017. His assessment doesn't come without warrant. The few union-level government healthcare workers that are stationed in the region are often expected to provide care for hundreds of patients, often with bare-bones supplies or resources. But the presence of non-governmental organizations in the region has helped, says government nurse Da Shi Mon Tet Tet Ung, who has been working in the Naga self-administered zone for the past year. There are a lot of doctors in MSF, and since they've been helping, it's been really useful. Once a month, when MSF comes here, they spend the entire day here, which allows a lot of villagers to come here and take medication. The MSF she's referring to is Medicine Sans Frontiers, an international non-governmental organization that has worked to provide health care across the globe. MSF began operations in the Naga self-administered zone just one year ago. Chip Hunter, the project director for MSF's Operation Naga, says the organization has had its hands full since the beginning. For about a year, we've been providing primary health care through mobile medical clinics that travel to the villages either by car when we can or by motor, motorcycles when we can't. Uh, the motorcycles are often on footpaths and, and very narrow little stretches of, of trail. We also work in the Lahe town area working with maternal and child health, working in the hospital in some capacities. Uh, we helped with a tuberculosis diagnostic laboratory that was set up in the hospital, things like that. We, we fill gaps in the Ministry of Health's efforts. MSF has also built hand-washing stations, provided sanitation and health education to villagers, and assisted the Ministry of Health and Sports with vaccination campaigns. But perhaps their most visible campaigns are the mobile health clinics they regularly hold. Witnessing a MSF mobile clinic visit to a village in the Naga self-administered zone, it's easy to see how the clinics are causing an impact in healthcare access for villagers across the region. Shortly after MSF's arrival, villagers, primarily women, children, and the elderly, have come to a small wooden schoolhouse, which has become the makeshift clinic for the evening. Here, MSF doctors and nurses attend to patients, offering services like pregnancy tests, are providing medicine for ailments ranging from gastrointestinal issues to eye infections. By the following morning, the clinic will have treated 27 patients, many of whom would otherwise have had to have traveled on foot for days in order to access modern healthcare facilities. Cha Kin, a Naga villager who lives in a small village called Haikun, which sits about 20 kilometers from the India border, says the presence of MSF mobile clinics has allowed her to access care in a way she couldn't before. Before the MSF clinics were available, I would have to walk to the next village to see if a doctor was in town. If they weren't, I'd have to call a doctor and wait or go to the next village. 
But working in areas that have highly remote populations can be challenging, too, says Dame Sandy Ung, a nurse working with MSF in the Naga self-administered zone. People here often have very little knowledge about health, but are also wary of outsiders or people they don't know. It takes a while for them to trust people. Communication can sometimes be an issue as well. Many people in the Naga self-administered zone don't speak Burmese, instead speaking one of many tribal ethnic languages localized to the region. Village administrators or extra staff from NGOs are often needed to help translate. But everyone agrees on what the biggest challenge is. The roads really are the, the biggest one because they, they really aren't roads in many cases. For instance, we have a village where we had planned on doing a lot of work this coming year. The road was completely destroyed, and it's now going to be another year before the town is even accessible. Challenges like the lack of infrastructure and efforts to gain the trust of local communities might continue to plague medical aid organizations for years to come. But the effort is worth the reward, says Smithius. Well, I think that uh, working in Myanmar is very uh, rewarding. There are quite clear needs. And these needs, they can be addressed. Yeah? They are relatively simple diseases. Uh, and if you make the right diagnosis, you can give the right treatment. And that can prevent an enormous amount of uh, suffering and death. That's very rewarding. That's what every doctor wants to do. That report was brought to you by Victoria Milko in Yangon. Syrian refugee Hassan al-Akra has become something of a minor celebrity in his adopted nation of Malaysia and a prominent face among Malaysia's refugee community. Since fleeing the Syrian war with his family seven years ago, the 19-year-old has begun raising funds online for refugees needing emergency medical assistance and has set up a volunteer network via social media. Last October, Hassan announced on Facebook that he is gay. This caused backlash from many of his supporters, with several of his donors reacting negatively and even refusing to donate to his work in the future. Adam Bemma meets with Hassan in Kuala Lumpur to talk about how his life and purpose has changed since moving to Malaysia and about his decision to come out as gay in a country where anti-LGBT sentiment is commonplace. Ladies and gentlemen, have you ever been in a situation where you only have two options in your life? Last year, Syrian refugee Hassan Al-Akra made a life-changing decision. They ask me, like, why do you have to come out? Why didn't you just keep it a secret? Wouldn't that be better? Despite the threat of persecution and discrimination in his host city of Kuala Lumpur, Hassan knew that coming out as gay was the right choice. If I kept it secret, yes, I would do that, but it's just depression to me. Uh, but me letting it out, and I don't have to act to be somebody else that I am not. Hassan has had to work hard to overcome difficulties in his adopted nation where opportunities for refugees are limited and homophobia remains rife. The now 19-year-old's family came to Malaysia in 2012, fleeing the Syrian civil war. Knowing nothing about how refugees were treated in Malaysia, Hassan learned to blaze his own trail. At the age of 12, Hassan was allowed to attend school, but two weeks later his father fell sick and he needed to help his family financially. Refugees are not allowed to legally study or work in Malaysia. I started working uh, washing dishes from morning to night, 
I used to get paid 20 ringgit only per day. <laughs> yeah, but at that time I didn't really care because all I wanted to do is just to support my family in any ways I could. At the restaurant, Hassan taught himself to speak English and Malay. When he was 14, Malaysian immigration authorities arrested Hassan. His UNHCR refugee identification card was no help in getting him out of trouble. All it could do was give a refugee like Hassan the assurance that the UNHCR will be notified to secure release. He was scared. My nine days in prison is the reason why I'm here today, uh, of all the work I'm doing today. First three nights of me staying in that prison was the, I don't know how to say, the most terrible nights in my life, terrible days in my life. I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat. I miss my parents. I want to, to see my parents. Hassan's experience taught him a valuable lesson about the lack of fundamental human rights for refugees in Malaysia. Inside the detention center, he met three Rohingya boys who had fled from Rakhine State in Myanmar. They shared their harrowing stories of survival with Hassan. He lost touch with them upon his release. To this day, he does not know what happened to them. But Hassan decided to do all he could to help those fleeing violence and persecution for safety in Malaysia. My main aim at that time was to just encourage these refugee children to come to school, get the best education as you can, shape your future. Nobody else will do it for you. Hassan started his volunteer work by teaching refugees English and Malay language skills. This helps them be better prepared and understand what their rights are as refugees and asylum seekers in Malaysia. A local newspaper wrote about Hassan's work. Immediately, a Malaysian doctor pledged to sponsor him to attend private school. Hassan hadn't been inside a classroom for five years. He graduated from school and now attends the University of Nottingham, Malaysia, one of the country's most prestigious. We are th so thankful to Malaysia. I mean, at least, although we're not allowed to work or to go to schools or whatever, we're still surviving. I mean, there are still many refugee schools here. Uh, refugees still work, although illegally, but they are still surviving at least. And Malaysia is a peaceful country. They welcomed us. In 2016, he founded Al Hassan Volunteer Network, one of the largest refugee-run organizations in Southeast Asia. It has 14 projects assisting refugees and has over 300 volunteers, including Malaysians and refugees. Hassan has become one of his community's most recognizable faces. He speaks often to Malaysian students and at TEDx events, raising awareness about the lack of affordable health care. I'm not just known in the public as someone who helps refugees. I'm also known in the refugee community as someone who helped them. So my contact number is public. So when there's a case of, for example, a, a mother who needs to deliver a baby, and so if she doesn't have money, uh, she will contact me. Hassan raises funds via social media to go directly toward refugee families in need. He recently hosted a workshop to teach others how to fundraise for nonprofit groups. Hassan decided this was time for him to come out as a gay man publicly. I'm the one who chose to come out. I have to face the, this consequence. I have to face these people. These people trusted me. These people are, are, are like these people who, who made me who I am today. So I have to explain myself to them. I have to tell them what the reason behind me coming out. Though there has been significant progress for LGBT rights in many other countries, such as India repealing the colonial-era law against homosexuality, homophobia remains rampant in Malaysia. Hardline Islamic groups are highly influential in some parts of the country and have become increasingly vocal in their condemnation of the LGBT community over the past year. 
Malaysia's new Pakatan Harapan government has shown little signs of combating anti-LGBT sentiments, a continued point of contention for many equal rights advocates. But there are also some signs of hope. The government has pledged to ratify the UN Refugee Convention and give refugees the legal right to work, giving renewed opportunities to some of the people most in need. When I give public speaking, my main aim is to, to do is to raise awareness and tell people about the reality of refugees in Malaysia. Hassan is hopeful his story can inspire Malaysians to see refugees as diverse communities with skills to contribute to building a more inclusive society. He recently helped launch Tiny Gold Hearts Project to help refugee kids receive emergency heart surgery. Being gay is just, it's just me, you know, it, it doesn't change me. I will not stop my charity work, I will not stop my purpose, my passion. That doesn't change it. It's just me being gay. Just, that's just my lifestyle, you know? Thank you so much. That report was brought to you by Adam Bema in Kuala Lumpur. The garment industry in Southeast Asia has grown rapidly, with businesses looking to countries such as Vietnam and Cambodia to set up their manufacturing bases. In February, Oxfam Australia released a damning report on garment factories supplying major Australian clothing labels. The research involved interviewing almost 500 factory workers in Vietnam and Bangladesh, and the report called out exploitative labour conditions like inadequate pay, long hours, and poor working conditions. Mark Tilly talks to Hannah Guy from Dorsu, Cambodia, a sustainable clothing label that ensures transparency in its supply chains, about her reaction to the report and how the garment industry in Southeast Asia can work to ensure ethical workplace practices. Hannah Guy, thank you for talking to us today. You're welcome. Can you please explain a bit about your background and experience in the garment industry? I've been working in Cambodia for 10 years. I have a clothing company here. We are a manufacturer, so we manufacture on site. We also sell here in Cambodia and in Australia. So I have experience both as a manufacturer and as a brand. Um, being Australian and living in Cambodia, I also understand the crossover there as well. So what was your reaction to the Oxfam report? I was shocked and not shocked. We see a lot of the issues that the report's talking about here on a daily basis. My staff are predominantly ex-garment factory workers, so I uh, understand from a very personal level. A lot of the things that the report were um, was covering, although it's not in Cambodia, I, I didn't find shocking and I have known for a long time and there's been a lot of dialogue about bringing this out. So I guess the probably only pleasant feeling I felt about the report was that it's finally coming to light yeah, if we're being honest, many of the issues raised in the report have been plaguing the garment industry for decades. Why is that? Essentially because it's cheap. Countries decided to take industries offshore because developing nations were growing the capacity to start industry. Um, it was cheaper, faster to produce clothing en masse than what was capable at home. Industries at home slowly died. Um, and this side of the world amped up. I don't know if it was ever intended for it to be as enormous or as exploitative as it is. However, none of these issues are new. Brands have been called out on this now for decades. And what, what is the industry's uh, reaction to being called out on these sorts of issues? There are some really classic historical cases 
that are somewhat similar to a primary schoolyard. Brands blame factories, factories blame governments, governments blame brands. There's an enormous cycle of blame game going on and always has been. Um, Some very classic public responses have been, we didn't know that was in our second tier supply chain. We do cover our first tier supply chain. We didn't understand that that factory was outsourcing to that factory. Okay, we'll go and do something about it. And then the same issues occur again. That's not to detract from the work that is being done, but I don't want to cut down fast fashion companies because in many ways their scale allows them to do things at a much faster rate than what any of the small players could do. It's whether or not they actually choose to or not, which is where I'm very sceptical. What has your experience been in terms of advocating for better working conditions in the industry, not only in Cambodia but in the region as a whole? The advocacy work that I want to do and I essentially can have a much larger scale impact with is through educating consumers. I do plan to grow my business to scale. However, we are not employing hundreds of thousands of people at the moment. The the context here in country at the moment even if I was at a scale where I could, does not essentially safely allow for really open constructive dialogue. It is different in Vietnam, for example, and the report covered one section of the industry in Vietnam. However, there are other areas that have drastically lifted their employment conditions, are working very hard to find a way to produce at a scale that still meets the demands of some of these large brands however in a in a way that also allows their operations to be certified and regulated the report very much focuses on the human rights impacts of the industry including exploitative working hours poor labor conditions and things like that but you're also concerned about the growing consumer and environmental trends in australia what are some of those concerns The environmental concerns are like a domino effect. I'm very disappointed and quite distraught at Australian household consumption of stuff in general that moves up into demand for clothing and for cheap clothing. And with the growing trends of that industry, we are putting more pressure on bringing clothing, cheap clothing, uh, made in a way that won't last, which can be argued to be encouraging us to buy more into the country. It's just so extensive and it impacts each different nation in a different way depending on their piece in the chain. What can consumers do to ensure their clothing comes from ethical and sustainable sources, materials and working conditions? I think not only make noise but get savvy. The information is out there and it's complex and I'm deeply concerned by our culture change through exposure to social media and technology for wanting simple, quick answers. And the next push, I believe, from consumers will be for transparency, not just for fair trade label, not just for organic cotton. It will be about transparency, but what to do with that transparency and how to understand what we're being told and whether that's legitimate, whether that has integrity whether we understand the context of that information is the next step that needs to be taken. Hannah Guy, thank you so much for your time. That was Mark Tilly speaking with Hannah Guy in Phnom Penh. On Friday 22nd March, 
Michael Anak Garing, a 30-year-old Sarawakian convicted of the 2010 murder of a construction worker, was hanged in Singapore's Changi prison. In the run-up to the day of his execution, Michael's case attracted the attention of the Malaysian government and media, with politicians and activists calling on Singapore to show mercy and halt the execution. The public attention led to official confirmation of Michael's hanging, an unusual occurrence given the silence in which executions are usually carried out. New Narratives Editor-in-Chief Kirsten Hahn has campaigned for the abolition of the death penalty since 2010 and has provided support to the families of death row inmates. She argues that the lack of transparency in Singapore's capital punishment regime makes it difficult for citizens to make informed decisions about this important human rights issue. In the early morning of 22nd March 2019, Michael Anak Garing was hanged in Singapore's Changi prison. Originally from Sarawak, he had been convicted of murder in 2015. Last-minute pleas from both his family and the Malaysian government for his life to be spared had yielded no result from Singapore's resolute authorities. It was no surprise. The President of Singapore hasn't granted clemency for over 20 years. It's no secret that Singapore is a staunch defender of capital punishment. But if not for statements from Malaysian activists and politicians and coverage in the Malaysian press, which subsequently pushed Singapore's Ministry of Home Affairs to make a statement following the hanging, we might not have known of Michael's execution at all. Officially, Singapore makes no apology for having and actively using the death penalty. Our political leaders claim that it's crucial for the safety and security of the nation, saying that it acts as a strong deterrent against crime despite the lack of evidence for this claim. The inmates we hang have mainly committed three types of offences, drug trafficking, murder or firearms offences. The majority of them are put to death for drug offences. The death penalty is thus a core component of Singapore's war on drugs, a fact that we openly advertise at checkpoints and on arrival cards given out to visitors entering the country. In practice though, Executions often happen in secret, with no announcement before or after they've been carried out. Prison officers, religious counsellors and executioners who work on death row are bound by the Official Secrets Act, making it illegal for them to talk publicly about most of what they do or have observed. Anti-death penalty activists like myself are usually only able to find out about and verify executions if we are personally in touch with the family of the condemned inmate. Families are usually given a week's notice. In Michael's case, his family had received a letter from the prison eight days before his hanging. If there is no network of support and advice, it might not occur to an overwhelmed, distraught family that they can approach human rights groups during this difficult time. Although Michael is the first execution I've been able to verify and document in 2019, I suspect he isn't the first to have been hanged this year. I've heard rumours of others led to the gallows, only I haven't been able to find out who they are or confirm that the executions have actually taken place. Based on past experience, queries sent to the prison will not be answered. This state of affairs exists despite Singapore's own promises on the international stage. During Singapore's Universal Periodic Review before the Human Rights Council at the United Nations in 2011, Finland recommended that the city-state make available statistics and other factual information on the use of the death penalty. 
The recommendation was accepted, but we have so far yet to see it implemented in any substantial way. The only figure that we get from the authorities is the number of executions carried out in the previous year, long after any lawyer, researcher or activist can look into the case before the inmate's life is ended. This makes monitoring and documenting the application of the capital punishment regime an incredibly difficult exercise, prone to error and omission. Last year, we counted nine executions, a number we already thought of as depressingly high. When the Singapore Prison Service released their annual statistics, we received a nasty shock. The number of executions in 2018 was actually 13. Who were the four individuals who'd been hanged without us knowing? We've still not been able to find out. If the Singapore government is really so confident that the death penalty is a critical part of our criminal justice system, if they feel entirely justified in its use, if they intend for it to be a deterrent and a warning to others, then why this secrecy? What is there to hide? Regardless of one's view on capital punishment, it's important to have publicly accessible data about its application. It is, after all, a sentence that the Singapore state carries out on behalf of its citizens, and such a serious irreversible punishment should be open to scrutiny and debate. Singaporeans should be able to access information relating to the number of people sentenced to death or are currently held on death row each year. There should be accountability as to the way death sentences are carried out. If executions are botched, people should know about it and factor it into the discussions of the death penalty. The lack of information about the death penalty makes it difficult for the public to have an informed view and participate in educated discussions of a serious human rights issue. It obscures the fact that, regardless of what we think of the actions and crimes of the inmates, the death penalty isn't just about administering punishment, but is fundamentally about the taking of human life. It keeps the issue largely abstract, distant from the lives of Singaporeans in whose names these hangings are conducted. This detachment from the death penalty is reflected in research findings. A comprehensive public opinion survey conducted by academics from the National University of Singapore found that 51% of respondents had low levels of interest or concern about the death penalty. 62% reported that they had low knowledge of the capital punishment regime, and 86.4% of Singaporean respondents said that they talked to others about the death penalty only once a year at most, if at all. It's a troubling situation, where Singaporeans have largely left the authorities to implement the ultimate punishment without meaningful levels of oversight. And so, in the early hours of the morning, before the sky brightens into day, an inmate is taken from the cell and marched to the execution chamber. A noose is looped around their neck, a bag placed over their head. A trap door opens, and they fall through to their deaths. And apart from their loved ones who grieve, none of us might ever know. That was brought to you by Kirsten Han in Singapore. And that's it for this episode. We'd like to thank our contributors, Victoria Milko, Adam Bemmer, Mark Tilly, Hannah Guy, and Kirsten Han for making this episode possible. Be sure to tune in to New Narrative's Political Agenda next week, our fortnightly podcast on current affairs in Singapore. And check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. If you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. Subscriptions start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Sampai jumpa.